All right, we're in Isaiah 34. Hopefully you've opened your Bible to that passage or you've navigated on your device. The topic there, when Jesus returns, he will summon the nations. The title of the message, the General Assembly of the Indicted Nations. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we've come to you humbly, Lord, in prayer to represent, Lord, that we acknowledge your need. Teach us as you promised you would, by your spirit who indwells us and who is in this place. I love that you say you discern between the soul and the spirit. It's a, it's a place that only you can get to, Lord, and speak to us. No, no uh, therapy, no, no man, no religion can get to that place but you. It's an intimate time of fellowship. We want to be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to each of us as Christians. And Lord, as always, we would welcome and thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit here to draw sinners to you, unsaved sinners, that is, those that need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do that work, Lord, we pray. I pray that we'd be accurate to the text and also learn things about ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. One time he was sprayed by a hose. Another time, he had to chase after a woman who tried to evade him on her riding lawnmower. He always has an empty pizza box in his car in case he pretends that he's delivering dinner. Who is he? He is a process server attempting to serve a subpoena to summon a person to appear in court. I've been served twice. Don't worry, I was served as a witness, not a defendant. I didn't attempt evasion, so there's no humorous anecdote. But perhaps the next time I'm served, I will. In our text, the Lord issues a summons. Uh, One version of the Bible reads in verse 1, You nations, come here and listen. You peoples, pay attention. Let the earth and all that fills it hear, the world and all that comes from it. Jesus Christ is returning to earth. He's coming at the end of the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble that we commonly call the Great Tribulation. At some point between his return and the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth, he will summon the Gentile nations of the world in order to identify who of the survivors of the tribulation will enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies. I'm going to organize my comments this morning around two points. Number one, you will see the carnage at the Lord's coming And number two, you will see the captives after the Lord's coming. Let's take a look at the carnage in verses 1 through 10. Would you believe me if I told you that the phrase second coming never occurs in the Bible? Not once. While there are hundreds of references to the Lord's glorious return, and he is definitely coming back, no Bible writer called it the second coming. It's not wrong to call the Lord's return the second coming. I'm sure I will continue to refer to it that way as well. But it might be more accurate to call it the return of the king. Or you could go full Greek. The Greek word parousia means a coming or a presence. Our friends at gotquestions.org say, primarily this word refers to the coming of the Lord. It can refer to either his second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation or to his coming to resurrect and rapture the church prior to the seven-year tribulation. 
You have to look at the context to determine whether it refers to his appearing in the air to rapture the church or whether it refers to his second coming back to earth to set up the kingdom. Isaiah is writing about the return of the king, his parousia here in chapter 34. And he says in verse 1, Come near, you nations, to hear. And heed, you people, let the earth hear, and let all that is in it, the world and all that comes forth from it. Heaven issues this summons. It's a notice to appear to the Gentile nations of the earth and to the earth, identified as all the things that come forth from it. This prophecy is global and cosmic in its scope. Nothing like this has happened in biblical history, and when it happens, it happens globally. It is future to us. Verse 2, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them and has given them over to the slaughter. The Lord's indignation against all nations is that they persecuted and would not help his people Israel during the years of the tribulation. In In fact, they sided with the Antichrist. It says here that Jesus is going to utterly destroy the armies and the nations, and it means just their armies. Uh, He's going to render them uh, impotent in that way. The nations will survive. There will still be nations in eternity. You can read about it in Revelation 21. After this world is uh, folded up like a garment, burned, and everything is made new, nations still exist on the recreated earth. Verse 3, also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. The mountains shall be melted with their blood. If you're watching television sometimes, you know, before the show comes on, it has up in the left-hand corner why it's rated, how it is. They'll say things like graphic violence, smoking, language, you know, things like that. So this is a very graphic language portion of Scripture. In fact, you're not really ready for it. Uh, because, you know, we're talking about the Lord's second coming and the millennial kingdom, and then all of a sudden you realize that, that there's a bunch of burning, smoking bodies and their blood is, is dripping down the mountain. And so if you thought carnage was too harsh a word in my outline, it's actually mild compared to Isaiah's description. Another Bible translation reads, their dead bodies will be left to rot and stink. Their blood will flow down the mountains. It's absolutely repulsive. Now, it's painful to read this, but it's nearly unbearable to realize that this will only be the beginning of the suffering for those enemies of God. While their bodies are left to rot on earth, their spirits are in Hades. They will be resurrected and be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, conscious and tormented forever. And so the carnage is bad enough, but the eternal loss is something that should just grip our hearts when we think about uh, the future and how many people are going to refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why so brutal? Why, why include this? Well, for one thing, sin is really ugly. I don't think we, we put it that way sometimes, but sin is ugly. When Jesus returns and he destroys the armies, we'll see in their slain condition something of what the wages of sin looks like and what, what it does to us. Some of you who've been you know, caught up in addictions or you know, gotten into certain situations, you know, you know you, you come to a point where sin revealed itself as, as the ugliness that it really was, as it destroyed lives and destroyed relationships and 
uh, costs you so many years of your life. You know, sometimes we joke with some people and say, man, the years have been hard on you. And, and that it's not really a joke for some people because they have in, in terms of their lifestyle and all. And, um, you know, the wages of sin uh, can be a, a, a terrible thing for you to pay. That's why Jesus paid it for us. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. At the Lord's return, there are going to be disturbances in the stellar heavens. It's a poetic description here of some of the power and the effect. I don't think we need to look for particular ones. It's just as you especially read Revelation, but also in Joel and a lot of Old Testament books, it talks about just a lot of crazy stellar things that are going to happen uh, as the Lord takes control of planet Earth. Verse 5, my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. Now, the language here almost makes it sound like Jesus polishes up his ceremonial sword. But the ESV translates it more realistically and more graphically, as do most modern versions, saying, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Uh, Compare this, sometimes we talk about the cup of suffering and, and the cup of God's wrath, and you can more easily see that illustration as you continue to pour. Sooner or later, the cup is going to overflow, and God says, my wrath is like that. I can only hold so much before I trigger some of these end times things. And so now we see that this sword, he's going to represent a vengeance with a sword, and it too has gotten its fill. And Jesus is going to come with it. The Lord says something similar uh, in Deuteronomy. He says there, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders to the enemy. And so it's it's pictorial, but of a real event. Uh, You know, and, and here's the thing. The Bible doesn't portray Jesus with a sword in his hand, hacking away at enemy soldiers. I love those scenes and those medieval and fantasy things, right? Everybody always has some special sword with a special name, and the bad guys are afraid of it, and they just go hacking around, and everybody in blood is spurting in their faces, and, you know, they're getting hit and stuff, and it's with their last, ah, you know, and they're impaling people, and they finally, it's great, I love it. <laughs> Somebody got me a sword. I was going to bring it out today, but I didn't want to be as weird as, uh, but I, uh, it's, a, it's an actual sword. It's like this, it's like, it weighs about a thousand pounds. I'm thinking, man, I could only wield that once, and then I'd be, hey, uh, <laughs> you have a break here. You know, these are two minute rounds, right? You know, and stuff. But uh, so, but Jesus isn't—he's not going to unsheath his sword and start hacking away. In Revelation 19, we read, "Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. They were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Now, the sword of the Spirit is what? It is the Word of God. And so Jesus kills by speaking the Word of God. I've seen really cool artist representations of this. They make great tattoos uh, of the sword coming out of the Lord's mouth. But it's not going to be like that. He's going to just speak the Word. It was said of Jesus that no one ever spoke like him. No one ever spoke like him. He spoke with authority. Every word was true. His words had power to deliver people and to save people. 
His words were beautiful. They were wondrous. Even non-believers admit that the Sermon on the Mount is maybe the greatest thing ever uttered. His words could pierce your heart. They forgave you. They blessed you even if you were an enemy. But for those who do not wish to hear his word, they will proclaim perishing unto the second death. And so the Lord will come. And after, in the tribulation, um, I don't want to get too off track, but if you read through the book of the Revelation, the great tribulation is the greatest time of world evangelism ever in the history of the world. There are 144,000 Jewish believers sharing the gospel around the world. Two witnesses who are, uh, cannot be stopped uh, until the middle of the tribulation go around preaching the word. An angel flies through the heaven with the everlasting gospel. Every person on earth hears the gospel in that one final push. But so many of them say, we'd rather hide in the rocks. We don't want to have anything to do with God. And so when the Lord comes... He'll have no, uh, no choice but to give people what they want. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, verse 6. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The priests in the temple sprinkled the blood of the animal that was sacrificed, and they burned its fat. And so Isaiah is employing this as a metaphor. Albert Barnes explains, these were animals which were usually offered in sacrifice to God among the Jews, yet it is evident here they denote people. And so the Lord is saying, this is going to be a great slaughter when I return of non-believers, and it is like a sacrifice in that sense, because they are sacrificing themselves. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross at Calvary as a substitute for every member of the human race. Jesus died on the cross for you and for every member of the human race, saying, I will take your place. And he could because he was God and man. And so as a man, he could stand for you, but as God, he could do something about your lost condition. And so he is your substitute to save you. And that substitution and that salvation is available to all men everywhere throughout all of time. You need only believe God and he will count it for righteousness. How do people get saved? How did Adam and Eve get saved? How does we get saved today? By believing God. Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. In other words, he gave him his righteousness. Abraham said, I believe God, and God says, okay, then I take your sin and give you my righteousness, and now you're saved. And we need that substitution. Without substitution, we face judgment for our own sin alone in our own bodies by our own works that fall far short of getting into heaven. Some people think that they can do good works, right? When I was first a Christian, they used to use this illustration a lot down in Newport, at Newport Beach, and you go into the water, and it's a clear day, and you can see Catalina Island, and so you head out for Catalina. It's, the song says it's 26 miles across the sea, but I think it's 22 miles. Anyway, so you're going, maybe, you, are there people who can swim 22 miles? Jack LaLanne probably could, handcuffed or, and blindfolded, but, you know, uh, 
let's say you can get to Catalina and you're like, I'm here, I'm in, let me in. And, and Peter comes up, the angel Peter, or the apostle Peter, and he says, you don't see it, but you know what's out there? The Philippines. As soon as you can swim to the Philippines, you're saved. And you think, I could never do that. And that's the idea. When I came to Christ, it was like, I, I, could, I can't save myself. I'm too far gone. It's over. It's, if I need somebody to help me. Uh, otherwise, I'm lost. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. Use TurboTax when you do your taxes. Those of you who are brave enough to do your own taxes. I, you know what? Your, your tax guy is using TurboTax, so you might as well do it, right? Uh, let me, uh, you know, I'll be right with you. Anyway, you get to that point, all the time they're trying to upsell you in TurboTax, you get to that point where they say, for X number of dollars, we will represent you if you get audited by the IRS. I'll keep my 25 bucks. I hope I don't regret it. You and I receive expert representation from the substitute. He represents you before God. And and God says, I see my son when I see you, you're... Welcome into heaven. Verse 7, the wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls and the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. Again, this is an illustration, animals representing men. But again, not an allegory. Men's blood, man's blood will be shed in copious amounts. Verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Day and year describe periods of time. Forever does as well. It doesn't mean forever into eternity. It means forever for all of that age. In The Lion King, Scar convinces Simba to take Nala to the off-limits, dangerous and mysterious elephant graveyard where the hyenas are ready to kill him. They can see it afar off. Here in verses 8, 9, and 10, uh, Isaiah indicates that the region of Basra in Edom will not be restored in the millennium. It will continually burn throughout that time. The millennium will be wonderful but not perfect. Why will it not be perfect? Because there will be people in it. Survivors of the Great Tribulation will go into that time of, uh, you know, that thousand-year kingdom, and it's not going to be perfect. But even the Lord is going to say, hey, over there where Edom is, the land of Edom, Basra, Petra, all of that, that's going to be a continual burning throughout this thousand years to remind people of what has happened. So why Edom? Why Basra? Well, Jesus taught his disciples about the future tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. The Jews will have a temple and be able to perform all their temple functions. Exactly halfway through the tribulation, however, the Antichrist enters the Jewish temple and he defiles it. At that very moment, Jesus says, get out of Jerusalem, flee to the wilderness with nothing but the clothes you are wearing. Don't pick up anything, don't go get anybody, it's just all you mad dash out into the wilderness. Commentators and scholars believe that the Jews will flee to Petra, the rock fortress city, about 125 miles away in the land of Edom. Petra was rediscovered 
1812 in what is now southern Jordan. So it still exists, and this uh, fortress will be where the Jews will flee to. God there miraculously protects the Jews over the final 1260 days of the tribulation. And we find that he defeats part of the Antichrist army at Basra. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 63, talking about this same moment in history. Who is this who comes from Edom with blood-stained garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, who speak in righteousness, I am mighty to save. And so this is Jesus Christ in his second coming at Basra in Edom, defeating part of Antichrist's army. Isaiah sees Jesus' bloodstained from battle at Basra, and this is why some scholars see Jesus returning to Edom, to Basra, before he returns to the Mount of Olives. Typically, we talk about the Lord coming and setting foot on the Mount of Olives uh, in his second coming, but it turns out that this is a campaign, like a military campaign, with moves and counter moves. Uh, we're not sure of the exact order, and it's not something to really fight about, but we know that there will be the gathering of the world's armies at Armageddon. We know that God will destroy Babylon during this time. We know that Jerusalem will be attacked during this time, and half of it will fall. We also know that the Jews in Edom will be holed up in Petra, uh, we know that Israel calls upon the Lord and all Israel is saved. We know the king returns to Basra and defeats the Antichrist forces and that he ultimately makes his way back to the Valley of Jehoshaphat and destroys all of Antichrist forces where the blood is rising up to the uh, horse's bridles. And so there's a lot of pieces and as you try and timeline them in together, you know, the, it's, it's hard sometimes to get the exact timeline in the Bible. Maybe you don't know this, but it's not a big deal, but scholars argue about the actual day Jesus was crucified. Was it a Friday or was it a Wednesday? Because, you know, how long is three days and what was going on in the Gospel of John? So you can't be really dogmatic about this. I don't want to see a fist fight afterwards out in the, you know, in the, in the uh, thing out there of, I believe in the Mount of Olives return. Yeah, I'm a Basra guy, you know, watch out for those wiry Basra guys, you know, and stuff. So, you know, it, a lot's going to be going on. You know what does happen? Jesus returns. It's the return of the king. We're not mentioned in this text. We couldn't be mentioned, really, because Isaiah didn't know about us. He didn't know about the church. How do I know that? Because Paul the Apostle says, I revealed the church as a mystery. No one's ever talked about the church before me in the sense of, of what God is doing during this dispensation. God distinguishes between three groups of people in the Bible, the nation of Israel, that is the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants, the Gentile nations, and the church. The church has not replaced or superseded Israel. The rebirth of national Israel in May of 1948 is all the proof you should need that the Lord has not cast off the Jews in favor of the church, but is still working with them. The church is a new thing in the New Testament era. The Lord will gather us to himself in his parousia, the one we call the rapture prior to the tribulation. And so in one sense, we're in this chapter because when the Lord comes back in his second coming, in his parousia, we are with him, having been raptured seven years earlier. 
We come back with him. You see this more in Revelation 19. But we're not named in the Old Testament. There is no church in the Old Testament. If you're ever reading a commentary and they mention the church in the Old Testament, you think, oh, these guys, these guys are reformed. And they don't believe that the church is, you know, a thing. And so uh, watch out. You're going to see captives after the Lord's coming. Pelicans, porcupines, owls, ravens, jackals, ostriches, wild beasts of the desert, wild goats, the arrow snake, and hawks. Other biblical translations mention vultures and hyenas and dragons and wildcats and buzzards and skunks and Sonic, the hedgehog. (laughs) Commentators redefine some of these animals as cormorants and bitterns and eagles and crows and foxes and wolves. Is this the Bible or Dr. Doolittle? And so this long list of animals, uh, maybe, you know, PETA got to Isaiah and said, we need more animal representation in the Bible. But you get some perspective on this in verse 12. You see in verse 12 that Edom is going to be a habitat, a weird kind of elephant graveyard type habitat for these animals. And if you read in verse 14 in the New King James, it talks about one particular animal, the night creature, who shall dwell there. I noticed in the reading that we had, they call them the night birds. And that's because a lot of times translators shy away from the supernatural. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says the term night creature or night monster is a hypothetical translation of the Hebrew term lilith, used only once in the Bible, the lil or a ghost was a night demon of terrible, baleful influence upon men. A medieval Jewish text called the Alphabet of Ben Sirah mythologically describes Lilith as Adam's first wife. There's a whole lore about how she disobeyed both her husband and God by asserting her equality to Adam. And so, in a sense, Lilith would be the first preacher of the egalitarianism doctrine uh, in the church that women can do everything that men can do, and maybe even better. I kind of bombed first service, too, but I have to do it. (laughs) There's a whole thing going on now in the church about complementarian. Are women to complement men in the church in their roles, like, you know, Adam and Eve? Or are they equal with men? Are there, you know, or should should there be women pastors? Those are the egalitarians that follow Lilith. Uh, Anyway, there is no Lilith, by the way, but uh, you'll come across this in some of these weird supernatural shows. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Because Isaiah's intended audience would have understood from this term that he was talking about demons and wicked creatures and supernatural beings and not a zoo full of animals. This isn't going to be the tribulation zoo. Hey, you guys want to go to the zoo today and see some cormorants? You know, no, this is is a place. The Holy Spirit is going to gather them and guard them there. They're going to be confined to that uh, and and, uh, multitudes of weird creatures. If you've watched the film version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you might remember the sacrifice of Aslan. Jadis, the white queen, was surrounded by multitudes of really weird creatures who represented evil supernaturals. If you're still having difficulty thinking Isaiah was referring to supernatural beings, remember at the cross, where really is about the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, in Psalm 22, 
It says, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, certainly they didn't bring bulls and lions out to watch the crucifixion. He means that there were demonic entities. Uh, And so while Jesus was on the cross for you and I, naked, uh, with that kind of shame, in pain, having been up all night through fake trials and been scourged and crown of thorns and all of that, there were also demonic beings tormenting him around that. When you, the more you think about what Jesus did for us, and the lower we should sink into the ground, right, and just cry out to the Lord. The Bible is a supernatural book, but people don't like to talk about the supernatural because it seems weird. Nobody wants to seem weird. We sometimes here talk about things like the Nephilim, and immediately people say, conspiracy theory, conspiracy, you, you're on the dark web, you know, and stuff. And I said, well, no, actually, that's the word. I'm sorry, you know. But people shy away from this, but Isaiah says, yeah, there's going to be, you know, a bunch of things there with this night monster, uh, and God's going to keep them all confined. And so verse 16, search from the book of the Lord and read, not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate, for my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. No prediction shall be without a fulfillment as its companion. Uh, it, you know, there's not, there's not going to be one, but if there was a press conference immediately following the Lord's return, like at the end of the Super Bowl, you know, Jesus come out all blood-stained and, uh, you know, and stuff. can we take a few questions, Lord? Sure, I'll, t- I'll take a question. You know, Fox News over here, you know, or whatever. Uh, there's not going to be that kind of a thing uh, where they say, hey, we, there, this one prophecy seems to have been unfulfilled. What do you have to say about that? There's not going to be one unfulfilled prophecy. They're all going to be fulfilled exactly the way God said they would. Search from the book. No prediction shall be without a fulfillment. And we are to search them out, especially in these last days. Verse 17, he has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. Casting the lot and dividing was the method God employed when he originally apportioned the promised land to the various tribes. We think it's a little weird, but the Jews did not think it uh, as a game of chance. They believed that God made his will known to Israel. He oversaw the casting of the lot. And so whatever they cast, they could trust because the Lord was the one giving it its role. Casting lots is not any longer how we discover God's will today. You're not going to come to one of our board meetings and hear us say, come on, pastor needs a new building, you know, and stuff, and drop the dice. We do use cards a lot. That's not true. I just get my way all, I throw tantrums and get my way. That's what really, that's what actually happens. Now we have a great board and uh, we find consensus and seek the Holy Spirit and do spiritual things like that sometimes. So... Well, I mean, you, you know, you try your best, right? I mean, you know, I'm, none of us are super. Well, I just speak for myself. I probably shouldn't be on any boards, but, uh, you know. <laughs> now, you know, we, we, we hopefully were like the church at Antioch where they prayed and fasted and they, they heard the Holy Spirit somehow, probably through a prophecy, and then they prayed and fasted some more, and then they did what the Lord wanted them to do. Um, and to the extent that we're doing really wild, foolish things, I think we're on board with the Lord (laughs) because that's what his servants do. Anyway, again, not forever, but for the length of the kingdom of God on earth, Edom will be this habitation of the night monster 
and her evil groupies. And by the way, this is the only mention of a female demonic entity in the Bible. Now, I want to explain something about the thousand-year kingdom, the millennium, while we're on this subject. Uh, Thousand years, millennium, kingdom of God on earth, those are all interchangeable names. When the Lord returns, there will be multitudes of human beings who survive the horrors of the great tribulation on the earth. At some point before the thousand years begins, the Lord will separate believers and unbelievers uh, because he needs people to go into the kingdom for a thousand years and repopulate it. This is famously referred to as the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, where the Lord sets people down by nation and says, in this nation, in, in Italy, uh, you supported my people and you didn't. And so the, the ones who don't are considered goats and they go off into Hades to await everlasting punishment. And the sheep are human beings in their mortal bodies who go into the time of the thousand years. You probably know uh, people who believe that the rapture of the church happens after the Great Tribulation. Not before, not seven years before, but at, right after it, as the Lord returns. You, you probably know some people who haven't told you this yet, or, or you, they think they have, or you've misunderstood them. But there are, is a growing movement, it's always been a position, but there's a growing today of people who believe that the Lord comes and that the church has been in the tribulation, fighting it out, enduring, suffering and all. And that when the, church, when the Lord comes into the heavens and, and all, that we are then resurrected from the dead and raptured. And all living believers go up to be with the Lord and return with him in his second coming. That's the post-tribulation rapture. There's a really, really huge problem with that. That post-tribulationists will even admit is a huge, huge problem. And that is this. If the Lord returns at his second coming and raptures and resurrects all the believers from planet Earth, there are no believers left on planet Earth to go into the millennial kingdom. They will all have been given glorified bodies. And, you'll, and it'll be like one of those like, oh, you know, have you ever done, like, been putting something together and realized you missed a step and now it's too late to unglue it? It's like, hey, uh, Lord... I know you had a lot to think about, but there's nobody left now to go into the great tribulation or into the, the kingdom. And so uh, it's a problem. Uh, it's, again, we're not going to have a fist fight over it. If you want to be a post-tribulationist, that's fine. We are not. We believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church for a lot of different reasons. And that's one of them because the post-trib position doesn't work out. Uh, and Because see, what happens is there have to be living human beings in the, great, uh, in the millennium because they reproduce and they repopulate. And then at the end of the thousand years, you read that there's a huge human rebellion against Jesus and against his rule. And so humans go in, they're saved, but they're sinners still, right? They're not changed. And as they give birth, their children are like our children today. They're, uh, you know, with a sin nature. And so anyway, just wanted to touch on that in case you run into that. Never in my lifetime have so many end times prophecies seemed as fulfillable as they are today. We used to talk about a lot of these things and we knew they would happen. It's like in the way, way back time, there were, scholar, there were uh, Christians who said, hey, Israel is going to be a nation again in the 30s and the 40s. And every, even other Christians laughed at them and said, no, God's done with Israel. We're Israel. And then Israel became a nation again. And some of us realized, wow, th this is a real thing. And others say, nah, nah, God's through with Israel. That means nothing. We're going to hang on to our weird theology. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, uh, but 
now the things that we talk about, Jews are ready right now to reinstate the ministry of the temple, right? They've got all the implements. They've got trained priests. They've got the ashes of the red heifer. You say, well, but Gene, they don't have a temple. I think they could, how fast can you do a pop-up? I have trouble because it goes up and down. You know, I'm like stretched out. I can only do about a five-foot pop-up because I have to do it all at once. But anyway, uh, tabernacle in the wilderness was a tent. Before there was a temple, there was the tabernacle, which is a 15 by 45-foot tent. How long does it put to put up a tent? Like, there's hardly any furniture either. There's not very much in it. And so they could start tomorrow with a temple, and it wouldn't be a problem. Global tyrannical government is the desire of many average citizens, not just the elite. People want there to be a global, they, they think it'll be equal. They think, now when the United Nations talks to you about equity, what they mean is that you give everything you own to people in Africa or people in India so that we're all at the same poverty level. Uh, not that you lift them out of poverty, but you, you go into poverty I think we all know that global government's not going to work, and you see that it doesn't work. It only takes about seven years for the devil to really mess things up. But today, you can see with the pandemic and things like that, the push towards globalism. A cashless global economy could happen right now. While we're in church, everything could have been switched on digitally, and you go home and, say, and there's, no, there's no money in your account, or the government says you can only buy what we tell you to buy. And that could actually happen. In fact, it is happening in some places. It did happen. And, and so we're not talking about something that, that's way out there. Artificial intelligence is expanding human knowledge exponentially. And artificial intelligence could certainly power the image of the Antichrist that is predicted to have sentient life. I can't think of one end times prediction that couldn't, couldn't be fulfilled right now. Now, I'm not saying these are the fulfillments. It may be something different and greater or weirder, but it, they could be. If, if we were raptured right now, I think all of us could see how, yeah, all of this falls into place right now. The stage is being set for the tribulation. The question is, will you be left on the stage to play out a part, or will you be in the audience, as it were, in heaven, waiting for your return. 